in the sundarbans thousands of villages are losing their natural defenses against climate change the degradation has irreversibly accelerated in this open decade the land is paper flat and crisscrossed by rivers bulging with meltwater from the himalayas cyclones frequently roar in off the bay of bengal flooding is pervasive in the aftermath of the cyclones and when the waters recede a set of embankments built in accordance with the earlier shoreline are set up by the villagers these act as the first wall of protection to prevent the erosion and loss of land but with the water levels rising these embankments have also begun to sink these concrete structures lost to the sea are now markings of geological time neeti is a short visual poem that attempts to grapple with the interrelationship between the ecology the folklore and the supernatural in the sundarbans delta born out of my frequent visits to the island over the years neeti attempts to capture a state of being through premonitions expressed by the indigenous people about the future in the rapidly eroding islands the folk deities from johannama appear within the work almost as apparitions helpless presences one amongst them is bonbibi a forest goddess whose legacy is one that still stands strong believed to be a protector of the forest bonbibi is the last hope that the natives of the sundarban have in order to fight the climate crisis that they are faced by The work tries to navigate the ecological crisis through the lens of the supernatural and the magical spaces within the enchanted tales of the forest. Welcome to TBA 21 on stage. We were listening to artist Pranay Dutta who has presented his work Neti from 2022 on TBA 21 on stage in collaboration with the Kochi Museum's Biennale. and curated by Mario de Souza. In this podcast episode, visual artist and film scholar Pallavi Paul interviews Ravi Agarwal and Shaunak Sen to explore the relationship between image making and the ecological. I'll leave you now with our host Pallavi Paul. We hope you enjoy it. I think uh, it would suffice to say that the question of the ecological in our contemporary world has become hugely significant for cultural production films artworks literature television social media they're all contending with a world that is um currently and perhaps has always been in immense political and spiritual flux and the climate the very air that we breathe the heat that we sense on our skin the water that nourishes us plant and animal species that are thriving and also those that have disappeared they all come together to present a solid test case for this kind of turbulence so then there are many 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 ways of sensing this time uh, which is bringing extreme precarity to many and much more accumulation to some it is also a time of action and equally of contemplation to know that we human beings absolutely took our time to get here and equally this time scale of us currently existing together is perhaps a blip or a tiny fraction in the largest geological temporality further 
the Anthropocene, which is a historical epoch where the actions of human beings have had an impact on the climate, has been a clear turning point in discourse. And by now, a wide range of image practitioners have responded to this affirmatively and critically. Today, I'm very happy to be chatting with two such practitioners, Ravi Agarwal and Sean Aksen. Since I'm very keen to hear from them, I will take a quick moment to introduce their practices. Ravi Agarwal has a long-standing interdisciplinary practice as a photographer, artist, environmental campaigner, writer and curator. Bridging the divide between art and activism, he addresses the entangled questions of nature and its futures using photography, video, text and installation. Sean Aksen is a filmmaker, video artist and film scholar living in New Delhi, whose documentary film on environmental issues All That Breeds won the Grand Jury Prize in the World Cinema Documentary Competition at the Sundance Film Festival, the Golden Eye Award for the Best Documentary at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival, and many more. Hi, Ravi. Um, and I feel it's good to begin um, in a kind of a really open way uh, with the question of what the ecological is. Um, how does it speak to history? Is it within the historical uh, that we can think of something as wide um, as the ecological? Or can we think of it as something that, in a way, provokes history? So, uh, for me, the idea of the ecological actually is... Uh starts very early on uh, when I'm when I'm still in my teens and I have this big relationship to the forest I grew up near and to enter it to go into it and to have a different sense of the world of myself and of everything around me so that was that felt feeling which is both material and felt is uh, is something which defined later on what we call that calling the ecological. So it's very much about relationship I have. And for me, as I've been thinking more and more, I've been working on environmental and ecological frameworks for a very, very long time. And the question is not fully answerable in any simple way. For me, the idea of the ecological actually is uh, a sense of a relationship to the world uh, where you are not alienated from it, you're not separate from it. And there are many kinds of connections. It doesn't mean you, I lose my sense of identity. It just means my identity becomes more complicated and more inclusive and also a wider sense. So I'm not only my body, but I'm also beyond my body in, in what is happening around me. And that all led me to the idea of community, of uh, understanding relationships. And today I think of the ecological in terms of relationships. You know, what relationships do we have to the world outside us? Because in a sense, nature always has been before man even came on planet. So there's a, there's a planetary, deep planetary history and a cosmic history we have in the universe we know. But for us, nature starts appearing in a relationship, which is both what we call in a pedagogical system science and and affect, affective ways of knowing and ethics and all these terms. But it really appears to us through this relationship. And then how we act upon it is the relationship we have generated. Uh, and that question becomes both political and sociological, I think. So I think it starts very much from the self, from myself, 
it speaks to history in some ways. Firstly, it's always there. We might, might have suppressed that feeling of a relationship. Uh, because of historical reasons, we have created selves which are seemingly isolated, but we are not even very material terms. We know that, uh, you know, if something is polluted, we can't really sort of partake in that pollution. But today, something else is happening because as we call the Anthropocene or the ecological uh, crisis or whatever word we want to use for it, something else is happening because we are forced to think in multiple histories and multiple time zones. The idea of time gets really complicated because we have to acknowledge it. There is, of course, a deep historical time which we are all part of and we don't fully know. We try and try and understand it scientifically and otherwise. But also the the uh, idea of time in terms of political cycles of time or uh, personal cycles of mortality and time. And it brings to the idea of uh, when we the Anthropocene, the question is when did it start? And that's also a question of what events took, took place. It was the industrial age, was it onset of agriculture, was it enlightenment where the position of man and nature changed? Uh, or was it even before that it was already existing? So the planetary becomes really complicated idea where we are forced to relocate ourselves in the ecological in multiple times and actually disorients us and shakes the frameworks we are in. And I think that's the very foundational uh, question we are confronted with right now, not only the climate crisis, but really about everything else too. Um, and in a way from this historical idea, I would now uh, like to move to the apocalyptical. Is the apocalypse around the corner? Or has it happened? How do you see the current, in a way, discursive polarization between two groups who describe each other as climate change denialists or doom mongers? I always feel that using the term the climate crisis, the word crisis, imagine there's something which has suddenly happened. But I would say that the conditions of it were laid far long time back. It could not have happened otherwise. So. When in a, in a scientific way you ex, extrapolate a graph, then it goes in a certain direction. You can always predict where, it, where it's going. That's what's happening with the ecological movement. It was predicted in the, by the Club of Rome in 1971 and even earlier. Now, the framework, the uh, apocalyptical, is waiting to happen because what is the moment of the ap apocalyptic? Is it, the, is it when human life gets destroyed or the existing planet changes in its form? So uh, that's been happening for a very long time. And maybe now we are coming to an ecological niche where the human species is being threatened. So in an in a anthropogenic way, yes, it is the apocalypse for us, for the human species. But in other ways, so much, so many extinctions have already taken place. So for them, for those species that already happened and finished with long time back. So it brings us to our human-centeredness when we use these words uh, of the apocalypse. But we have said the conditions of that uh, very long and uh, in in terms of the debate between climate deniers and uh, and and doom mongers i mean those are two extreme positions but the dialectic is something that's a part of any human argument any human form so i i welcome the dialectic because the dialectic has has been the way in which knowledge has been produced forever uh however Nobody can deny that the climate is changing because we can experience it, we can feel it uh, all around us through the, through the uh, events and through what's seeing, we're seeing different flowering times, etc. We can all see it. 
However, the problem, the, the question only arises: what caused it? Even if you bring the idea there have been other, other global warmings in the past, I mean, I think last was about 12,000 years back, uh, then uh, there have been looking for causes. They have not happened without a cause. So whether the causes have been attributed to some cosmic event or, or a meteorological event or something or the other, they're not the normal cycle of the planetary movement. Something has happened, some events have happened. The question is, what event is happening now? If you look at all the scientific data of the Great Acceleration from the 1950s onwards, you see that all the parameters of the planetary uh, cycles, like the nitrogen cycle or the carbon cycle, they've all gone sharply up in the last 50 to 70 years. Uh, so the data is quite evident that in this time, there is no great meteor. It is something we are doing, something we have been party to. So... You can be an ideological denier, but if you look at any kind of reasonable, logical science and even look at the histories of warming and, co and cooling of the planet, you have to look at what is causing it. And unfortunately, this is the time where the data is quite clear that we are causing it as a human species, maybe some more than the others, which means that it is up to us to uncause it. Nobody else is going to do that for us because the other material which hits hit the planet this time. And finally, Ravi, uh, what kind of pressure uh, can we say uh, the image, especially the photographic image, exert on this idea of the ecological? Uh, for me, the photographic image has always played in trying to focus and see the the unseen, the indeterminacies which happen on, on, on what I see around me. And it's a way of both relating uh, to what I see as a, as a canvas to myself, but as, a, as an exposure to something else. So for long, I have moved out of the classical event-based uh, imagery, you know, the fantastic visual image. For me, the uh, photographic image now is about uh, looking at uh, those relationships which we need to know. So how does a fisher live with the shifi? How does a small farmer live with the land? What cultural and uh, livelihood entanglements are there? Of course, you know, the visual image is a very strong part of the way we see the world. You know, it's the most dominant force we have in perceiving the world. So for me, it puts the burden in a very political and personal political way of where I'm seeing and what I'm seeing and brings a great responsibility on the image to me. I also feel that images can be agents for change, maybe not in a very immediate way, uh, like, you know, from one moment to the other, but in realizing things we don't realize earlier. If images also, to me, give agency to human beings and of how and what we can do something about. So images which take away agency, uh, where the aesthetic, aesthetics of the image make us just absorb the contradictions and the devastation. I try and move away from those images and I'm constantly concerned about my responsibility as a photographer, as an artist, towards image making, but also towards what I'm making images of and why I'm making those images. So if I'm not making those images just to create a beautiful uh, sense of something, uh, which people can argue with is also very important, but what it means in terms of uh, what we can do with it uh, in terms of how we think about about something. 
I think there is the ecological question brings so much which has never been recognized historically because the ecological question has been outside the social question. We've always assumed that nature has been out there without recognizing that it's really uh, constantly relate, related to. Then I think we need to adopt new strategies and new ways of image making. And uh, then we have done before because we are going into an, well, seemingly unknown realm of what is it we are trying to do uh, with the world we are trying to imagine. Understand? So I'm constantly in that space and I think the image also becomes more than the image. It becomes other materials, it becomes uh, other forms as well for me. So uh, it's a challenge from the received way in which I grew up learning image making and what I'm doing now. It's a big challenge, but a very productive one for me. My next question now is to is to Shonak, uh, who has been uh, working on this uh, connection between the cinematic and the ecological for some years now. Um, Shonak's current film, All That Breeds, is traveling across the world. And Shonak, in this film, I feel one of the reasons it's moving people so deeply is that it's able to make this connection between the expanse of the ecological and the capaciousness of the cinematic form. And in a way, I would also uh, like to continue from where we left off with Ravi on the relationship between the photographic image and the ecological. And to extend it a bit more, I urge you to speak on the relationship between the cinematic and the ecological. Well, as a practitioner, it actually, uh, the ecological as a term uh, means a deceptively simple thing. And uh, it is for me the inconceivably complex entanglement between the living and the non-living. And my entry point into it, of course, I'm interested in, in it conceptually and philosophically. But right now, because um, I've been mulling over it um, in a more experiential register because I'm living in Delhi and the climate emergency here, but also because for the last three years, I've, me and many collaborators around me have been deep diving into how to find an aesthetic register for this. It's through the cinematic, I think, that I feel I have anything of interest to say about the ecological. Um, for me, the problem of uh, the climate is one essentially of representation or more specifically, of visuality. Since the uh, dangers of the climate emergency are not always uh, visually self-evident or tangible, only uh, sporadically so, I think essentially has been, uh, you know, that's at the crux of what the problem is. And what representation does is that, you know, it expands or it homes in on what Anna Singh calls the arts of noticing. You know, um, and cinema especially is interesting because it extends the, you know, it has the ability to extend the regime of perception. It allows us to see, notice and contemplate fragility. You know, it allows us to contemplate entanglement and interrelationship and neighborliness and kinship and so on. So uh, cinema obviously has a kind of special power of to show. It has a special purchase on what can be called zoomorphic realism and uh, you know can democratically show cross-species relationships or to push it further 
it can help us contemplate relationality itself. Now, when I say this, uh, you know, I'm referring to this uh, mythical object called cinema. But of course, we know that in the intersection between climate and cinema, there's a large number of things, uh, including, for instance, uh, you know, things that are subsets of what is now known as cli-fi, climate fiction, or, you know, usually the uh, enormous disaster films or films that can be cataloged as ecotopia or eco-dystopia, etc., but I'm actually interested in a slower kind of cinema that helps us contemplate the epistemic wallpaper of our lives, of non-human life, our closeness to the world, to um, living things, and makes us think basically on neighborliness or the kinship to other things. And in a way, um, even my film, All That Breeds, began, apart from, of course, my philosophical and aesthetic interests, it started as a kind of response to a lot of things that were that otherwise carry the burden of uh, representing the ecological. Obviously, the, what I'm going to say now is a bit banal, but the, um, the main crisis there has been that so much of what terms itself the environmental is actually either a kind of preachy gloom and doom despair or a kind of prelapsarian uh, nostalgia or a kind of you know slap you on the head grab you by the lapel and tell you to feel bad and therefore so much of it is either preaching to the choir or it inevitably alienates people who are at the other end of the spectrum or who uh, for a variety of reasons don't want to believe in or engage with the climate crisis and the interest my interest in, you know like films are like Trojan horses. You can um, sneak in ideas and emotionally move people, even those who don't believe that they want to have the conversation or want to be in the room. But the truth is that we are all in the room. And the idea is, like, we as filmmakers, our, our skill set is to be able to emotionally move people unsuspectingly. And even if it's happening in a non-willingly way. So, um, that's how all that beat originated. It was an interest in and in the entanglement of life, in the greenness of living in Delhi. You know, if you live in Delhi, the air itself is such a palpable, visceral, tactile object. And there's a kind of greenness that laminates your life. And I was interested in thinking of multi-species entanglement and, again, ideas like relationality and uh, kinship through this kind of... So the idea was to use the film where the affective ethical dimensions of the perception of the world can be pushed in specific ways. And also, you know, there is this kind of tendency to think of the apocalypse, the image of, of the apocalypse as a world without people, right? And yet there are also these sort of um, discourses where the lack of human presence or human activity somehow restores nature to its original health. How do you see um, this tension which undergirds discourses around the ecological between the human and the non-human? Is an apocalyptic world a world without people? Okay, let me just say that this whole business of the world without humans, there are different entry points in it. I know that there's one 
version of it that uh, enjoys a lot of constituency now which um, i don't have too much patience for it i like to call it the pandemic romanticism which is that you know it's like the whole variety of uh, reports that we heard that because of human activity dwindling at the time these birds had come back to this places the fish had come back to the canals and venice this had happened and the truth is that what it still does is that even though its outer cloak is of a kind of human abnegation uh, despite the evacuation of the human it still configures the planet through the absence of the human and that again is a sort of roundabout uh, hubristic move more than human as a discipline as a disciplinary subset in human geography uh, obviously has to do with decentering of the human as the absolute reference point so a lot of the post apocalyptic uh, scenarios which banish the human from the earth actually are only looking at it through a kind of the ghost of the human constantly haunts it and i don't know if that's a interesting way of looking at it because the truth about the planet that i think we have to understand is that it is deliciously and radically and magisterially agnostic to life and especially to humans and of course life is recalcitrant as are humans but uh, you know we have to re- we have to resist painting it with a kind of nostalgic lamentation having said that uh, what is interesting in films you know it's like apichit pong's uh, memoria right uh, like in films like that is that you feel a kind of uncanniness or a creepiness of the world and you feel like the you're haunted by the world itself where it's the specter of the planet itself that's sort of haunting you which i find very 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 interesting and actually maybe you know it could be interesting if i tried to answer this question through the notion of ghosts or through the notions of um haunting so let's talk about literature and the relationship between literature and climate change and the one that's obviously uh, now very well known and i think it's a extremely well mounted argument is amitav ghosh's okay so amitav ghosh's argument about literature and climate change is essentially this so ghosh diagnoses that uh, literature appears to have done an expressly dissatisfactory job in representing climate change this might uh, according to ghosh be because of how serious literary fiction especially the novel has historically de- developed so his main point is that you know the improbable or the unlikely or the un- unheard of was slowly banished from the center of the novel and consigned to the margins of genre fiction you know either the disaster novel or the gothic or so on so ghosh charts out this kind of historical trajectory which uh, takes into account a kind of weberian rationalization inherent to the imaginary of modern life where uh, secular rational scientific perspectives saw the world as being inherently mappable catalogable and an object to tame and taxonomize uh, and actually this is stephen j gould's idea that ghosh also uses where earth history increasingly gets seen as a kind of a slow gradualist model and not one where uh, catastrophe is as much a part of the natural fabric so in this version of the world nature itself is moderate it's predictable it's tidy and it's conveniently exploitable you know so the catastrophe and the miracle or the natural world acting in truly unexpectedly bizarre ways like like big events like floods or earthquakes or comets 
uh, alongside the world of demons and ghosts and witches were all frowned on or dismissed as pre-modern. So Ghosh's bigger point is that the very way in which the novel constructs reality is by the concealment of the real, you know. So a real that is sanitized of the very many things that populate actually our real world, especially our real today in the 21st century. So a focus on non-human life, especially when it acts unpredictably, really militates against this tendency. So it's this classic thing, no? Think if you're suddenly walking down a road next to the graveyard that you're in, uh, and you suddenly encounter an animal, say a snake or an angry bull, you turn around the corner and you suddenly see it and there's that moment of eye contact, right? So for John Berger, the moment, that, that particular moment when you encounter the animal is interesting because the main mode of that uh, meeting is the encounter where you contemplate it, it thinks of you and then there's a response. It could be aggressive, it could be walking away or it could be fright, whatever, right? That silent exchange of gaze is all you have. It is communication, undoubtedly, but there is also a huge gap in that communication and it also inspires a kind of uncanny because, you know, you see the other, which is a non-human, you understand some of it, but there's such a large iceberg of things that you don't understand, right? You suddenly are brought face-to-face with something that has its own agency, its own willpower and its own range of emotions like anger that is all outside the human. In a way, climate change is like that. It is creepy, it is uncanny, and freakish climate events feel like an exertion of um, agency and pre- presence and volition, if you have. We are suddenly, in the last 20 years, more than ever before, reminded of our non-human, larger-than-life interlocutors. We are not alone. That forests and seas can insert themselves into our lives and thought, often forcibly and not just subtly. One of the things that Ghosh says, and it's a lovely kind of formulation, is that it's almost like we've always felt like we were having a conversation with the world while we were um, unaware that other people were listening in on that phone call. Uh, it was almost like we were having a conversation and it's only now that we are getting uncannily aware that that telephone has always been tapped or that what Ghosh says is that our neighbours have long been eavesdropping on family discussions. That's his quote. And that's why cinema is interesting because especially non non-fiction cinema is that it can show the this slow creeping uncanny uh, of the world changing not just in the sense of the catastrophic or you know oh there's the final polar bear on the final uh, 50 meter of ice not in that kind of a catastrophic or loud this thing but it shows the instances of entangled agency and consciousness that is outside of the human in really interesting ways and, uh, ways. and cinema can do that more than anything else and that's the kind of ecological cinema that I'm interested in. Now that, that's the best form of a human-non-human relationship that it can excavate. And Shonak, my final question to you would be around scale. How do we think of scale when we think of cinema that deals with ecology? Uh, because the ecological is also planetary and cosmic in its unfolding. And at the same time, it's also cellular and microscopic. Do you feel that cinema is the only or perhaps in a unique position to uh, deal with these compressions and expansions? Or do you feel there are other ways in which we can think of cultural production and ecology as co-journeyers? I mean, my only thing to uh, add to that comment is that um, scale, not just in the term of size, but scale, scalar differences also in terms of the difference between the foreground and the background. 
So I don't just mean in the sense of the biggest of, uh, you know, like a hurricane or a storm, but I also mean in the sense of the tiny, subtle intricacies of our everyday life, in our everyday mundane, quotidian, banal, humdrum lives, and how the climate or the ecological articulates itself. Let me give you an example. So, for instance, um, in my, sorry for giving examples of my film, but it's very fresh in my head. And uh, so it's like, uh, at one point, the main protagonist, the brothers, get into a really petty domestic squabble, you know, about some domestic chore that one person was expected to do, but he didn't do, therefore the other person had to do it and so on. But these seemingly petty forms of communication, which kind of express a sort of irritation or irritability or a broader sense of, you know, as if things are not right, are also the climate. Because in this particular case, they're handling the case of literally scores of birds falling down from the skies of Delhi every day. And it's creating a kind of labor, but also affective labor. And what it does is mood. So I'm interested in thinking of climate in the sense of mood and in the sense of everyday textures of behavior and micro gestures and, you know, things like irritabilities or tiffs or melancholia or, you know, those kinds of extremely small micro gestures. So, scale also in the sense of everyday moods. Well, I don't know about the fate of cinema, um, but of like so many films that are about that basically intermingle um, cinema and childhood and nostalgia and I really feel like there's a you know there's a connection definitely that's forming slowly and which I which I'm going to go out on a limb and say is going to be more and more conspicuous in the next you know, three or four years is the concatenation of celluloid meets nostalgia meets a kind of almost prelapsarian desire for the, uh, you know, a world without planet crisis. Of course, you and I know that any, even the slightest degree of rigor will completely dispel any, it's like the climate crisis has been ongoing for a while. Of course, the great acceleration happened at least in the last 60 years. It's gotten particularly exacerbated in the last 15 or odd, of course, but it's been bad for a while, basically. But, I think what cinema will do increasingly is that uh, hopefully a lot of cinema will be about the biosphere and cinema itself will become a way to contemplate the world. And I also believe that our understanding of climate change has been because of cinema because we've been able to conceive of time through a broader longitudinal and geological register. So, and it's helped us understand the crisis. But cinema will also help in profoundly giving it, you know, an emotional register to the crisis also. And hopefully, uh, you know, it brings it front and center in more subtle ways. Or again, going back to Ghosh, the great derangement of our age or the nutmeg's curse will be articulated by montages, i.e. cinema. I deeply thank both my guests, uh, Ravi and Shonak, for their fantastic insights into the jumble and the forest that the ecological is. I think that both of their practices and the elegant way in which they brought 
the worlds, the respective worlds around which their practices are constructed every day, um, really enriched us uh, to think of the current moment uh, where we are witnessing the brutal plunder of certain kinds of um, resources and uh, guarantees. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also a world that lends itself to new thought, to new action, uh, and to new possibilities. I hope uh, that all of you remain with some of these ideas and think of the ecological as not a specialized domain of knowledge, but as something that we are energetic co-architects of every single day. I thank you all for joining us. For more riveting content, please check out TBA21 on stage at www.stage.tba21.org. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Kochi Muziris Biennale in an episode curated by Mario de Souza. TBA21 on stage's editor-in-chief is Francesca Thiessen-Bornemitzer. Content curator, Soledad Gutierrez. Curatorial assistant, John Aranguren. Project manager, Nina Speranda. Audio editor, Roberto Bossoms. Theme music, Carl Michael von Hauswolf. And I am Madeline Robinson. Thank you for listening.